0: Ecclesiastes chapter five. We'll start in verse one. So just to sort of review, what are some of the things that we looked at last week? I remember some of the things we looked at last week. We've forgotten it's in chapter four. So. Okay. Yeah. The advantages of, of companionship in a variety of areas of life, the uh, sadness of working simply for yourself without any advantage or anyone to leave it to. What else? We have this idea of oppression at the beginning of chapter 4 and also at the end, the The people who are in power, perhaps one who's in power and uses it poorly, and perhaps one who's in power who formerly had had no power, and yet the people turn against him, and so he realizes that that's not a solution to all of the difficulties of oppression. And so we see some of those contrasts in chapter 4. Even earlier in the book, what do we see back in chapter 3? A lot of paired ideas. What, What were those about? Good, time for everything, uh, sense of eternity, God putting a desire for us to seek Him out. And in the chapters before that, what were some of the key ideas that we saw? Obviously the idea of wisdom and foolishness, but what were some of the other things that we looked at? Okay. Pleasure not being a, an ultimate goal for which to live life. What about even something good like work? Is that, a, is that an end in itself? No. So, everything we have looked at in this book is an insufficient goal for our lives. But then we come to chapter 5, and in this section, we have God mentioned more frequently, or at least more uh, tightly, closely together, than in a bunch of the previous chapters. Uh, We see God in verse 5, twice uh, chapter 5 verse one twice in chapter two uh, uh, then in in verse two yes <laughs> also again in verse 4 and then several times in verse 6 and then in verse seven look at the very beginning of verse one what is it how does that first phrase start out what sort of the uh, The tone or the attitude that we see in that verse. Okay. Okay. So there's a word of warning there. When we do what? Maybe one of the kids can answer this. When we do what? When should we be warned or careful? What does verse 1 say here? Yeah. Okay. When we go to the house of God, which for them would have been the temple, for us is when we gather uh, in church. And uh, if we look at the very end of verse 7, it says the same idea in a slightly different way. It says, rather what? End of verse 7? Fear God. So that is the idea that, that sort of begins and ends this short little section. And uh, it really has a lot to do with our words, but it also, it, we could probably start well by thinking about what it shows us about God. So if it says, when you go to the house of God, what does it mean that God has a house? What's done there? What's his relationship to that house? Okay, he's worshipped there. You and I, we all need a house. We need a shelter. We need a place to live, right? Does God need a house in that sense? No. We saw in Acts 17, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. The Israelites built him a temple, but it wasn't as though God was confined just to that temple. Um, he's everywhere. He's all-powerful. It says in another passage that, that heaven and earth is his throne, is his temple, is his dwelling place. And so God is great. Right, right. Yeah. So if you have a chair that has a, a footstool with it, and if you picture the earth is like the footstool, generally you don't think of the footstool as the most important piece of furniture in the room, right? But that, is, that doesn't mean that God doesn't care about us or any of those sorts of things. It just means, in our eyes, we're very important. Compared to God, we are not. So we come to the house of God. In verse 2, and we'll come back to some of the phrases in verse 1, but in verse 2, it gives another warning, and then it gives the reason for it at the end of verse 2. What's the reason for the warning that we see at the end of verse 2? Yeah. God's in heaven and you're on earth. So, what's God going to do with our words that we speak? He's going to judge them, evaluate them, right? So, God is going to evaluate what we say. So, there's a place... In which God dwells, where we draw near to worship Him, there is uh, the fact that the words that we utter in God's presence, we will give an account for. And when I say we utter in God's presence, technically God is everywhere. So all the things that we speak, ultimately we have to give an account for to God. And what is God's attitude toward uh, promises that we make in verse 4? God takes them seriously, so should we keep those promises or not keep them? We need to keep the promises that we make. So that's what this passage says about God. Come before God reverently and fear God. Which is interesting because that's going to be the point that Solomon's going to drive to at the very end of the book. Fear God and keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man, right? So we get a little bit of a preview of it here in the context of worship, But specifically, our response, our attitude toward God is revealed by our words. When we come in God's presence, should we be ready to speak or ready to listen, according to verse 1? It says we should listen. Now, it's interesting. It says this idea of sacrifice or offering, how would someone who does not fear God bring their offering before God? Yeah, probably. Alright, think back to Genesis. Cain brings his offering to God. What does he basically say to God with his offering? Okay. Yeah. Does it seem that God had given requirements for what the offering was supposed to be? Yeah. And what did Cain decide? I'll bring whatever I want. And you need to accept it, God, because I put forth the effort to bring you this offering, and in so doing, that was foolish. And we know what came of that. He got angry at Abel, who brought a proper offering, and he killed him. Um, but this is, I think, the sort of picture that, that that we have here. Here's someone who comes to God with the right attitude versus someone who comes to God with the wrong attitude. Think of Jesus' story of the... Um, the Pharisee who goes up to the temple to pray. How does he pray? Right. That's what it boils down to. Look at me. I am great. I am wonderful. He comes with a sense of pride. The sinner comes before God's presence. What does he say? God have mercy on me. So there's two ways in which we can approach God. And if we pay attention to Solomon's warning, we will guard our steps. We will be careful. We will think about the way that we are coming before God. Now, is it possible for us to have a relationship with God? Can we speak of Him uh, properly as our Heavenly Father? Yes, but that's not the focus of this passage. The focus of this passage is, God is great. Do you come before Him with proper reverence? And the the danger is, if we don't do that, what does it say at the end of verse 1? Those who offer the sacrifice of fools don't even realize that they're doing evil. They're so blind in their pride and in their lack of concern for God and His greatness that they don't even know what's about to happen next, that God will not accept their sacrifice, or that God will punish them, or any of those sorts of ideas. And so then the way that that plays into our words positively, draw near to listen, draw near to receive from God, not to come to God and say, here's all these wonderful ideas that I have, you need to listen to me, but rather, let me learn from you, let me hear what you have said. The opposite of that, or the, the, the corresponding idea, is in verse 2. Don't be hasty in word, or impulsive in thought, to bring up a matter in the presence of God. Um, A couple years ago, uh, someone was talking to me and they said, sometimes it seems like you like to bring up an idea before you've thought through it all the way. How many of you feel like you maybe do that sometimes? Yeah. It's one thing if you do that with a friend you're just having a conversation with. You're just sort of bouncing ideas off that person. But if it's someone who's your boss or someone of, of great significance, humanly speaking, um, if you had an audience with the President of the United States, with a, a leader of a foreign country, something like that, you probably want to give a little bit of thought to what it is that you're going to say, right? You just don't want to show up and blurt out the first thing that comes to mind. Don't be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God think before you speak, and keep in mind what it says at the end of verse 2, God is in heaven, and you're on the earth, therefore let your words be few. Now, some people naturally speak less, some people naturally speak more. I don't think the main point is, do a word count, and if you're over a certain limit, then you're automatically sinning. I think the point is, we are more likely to get ourselves into trouble when we say a lot of things, when we haven't thought through them, than when our words are thoughtful and considered and so forth, particularly when it comes to worshiping God. So, uh, let's look at verse 3 and then maybe make some brief application on that. When it, verse 3 is a little bit puzzling. It says, "...the dream comes through much effort, and a voice of a fool through many words." Uh, The word, the the idea of dream, is interesting because I think he's sort of picking up on that theme of something that's insubstantial that he's been talking about all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. There's different ways in which the word dream is used in the Bible. Sometimes it's a dream like a vision or Joseph's dream or something like that. But here it seems to be, it says, comes through much, much effort. When do you typically have a dream? When you're sleeping after you've done a lot of work. And sometimes those dreams can be off the wall crazy, right? Yeah. So we have these various dreams. And as of much and of similar value and of corresponding reality is what the fool says. The crazy thing that you dream and the words of a fool, I think it's speaking of them in a parallel fashion. They're both fleeting empty, and not really all that, all that valuable, you know? So, in the same way, draw near to listen, then to offer the sacrifice of fools. Don't be hasty, because God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. Just like the, the crazy dreams that we might have, or the many words of a fool, these things are not what God is looking for when we come before Him in His presence. I said the house of God would have been the temple in Solomon's day. For us, we gather in a place that for us is a place of worship, but the building is less closely associated with God's presence than the temple was for Israel. That doesn't mean that there shouldn't be a certain um, attitude when we come before God's presence, and certainly when we are actually worshiping God, we should should keep these sorts of principles in mind. So, it is possible for us to be eager to have our ideas be heard. When it comes to what God has said to us in the Scripture, we have to do our best to say, what has God said? Not what do I want God to have said, or what do I want to say, but what has God said? And, we're all guilty of this at different points, of of looking at a passage of Scripture and saying, what do I wish that said? Or, what do I want to make this passage say because it's an idea that, that I would like to get across? We must listen to what God has said when we consider His Word. When we are praising God in our songs, in our prayers, sometimes we approach that in a way that is uh, more geared toward other people thinking what we say sounds nice than honestly being something that honors God. Now, I'm not saying that it's an either-or between a long prayer and and empty words and a short prayer and pleasing God. That's not always how it works out. But we need to be careful that when we come before God, think about what we're going to say. Speak to God reverently because He is God. Now, um, what does that mean about our prayers? What does that mean about our worship? Should we only ever pray things that we've written out beforehand? I think that there's a place for spontaneous prayer. But, I also think that it is good exercise for us to sit down and think about what we're going to pray before we pray sometimes as well. Because we tend to be over here on the spontaneous side of things because we have a distrust of various churches in which everything is formal and and ritualized and liturgical, but sometimes it's possible for us not to show proper reverence to God because of our having come so far over here. The main point is that we would be wise instead of foolish, that we would listen to God instead of demanding of God that He would listen to us, That we would uh, be careful about our words so that we are more prone to speak less than to speak too much. Which then leads into kind of what the title that I put in uh, the bulletin for the message about not lying to God, which is really picked up in the second half of this passage. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it. What is a vow? a promise. Um, We don't have many examples of this in our society today. Um, Weddings, oaths, if you get called into court, like as a witness in a court case. Um, If you were to be uh, sworn in as an elected representative, you would also take a similar oath those are really about the you know the main examples or promises that we would make perhaps someone who serves in the military would you know promise to protect the country yes sure and and i think we do um, I think what we're saying certainly has application to all those sorts of things. We're just saying, like, the the people of Israel, their context would be um, like the the brief allusion this morning's passage, when Paul shaves his head. That was probably in connection with a Nazarite vow, which, flip over to number six, because that might help illustrate kind of the context of this particular passage. So number six, starting in verse one, again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite or one separated to dedicate himself to the Lord, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink, drink no vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink, nor shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat fresh or dried grapes. All the days of his separation, he shall not eat anything that is produced by the grapevine, All the days of his separation, no razor shall pass over his head. Uh, He shall be holy until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall let the locks on his hair of his head grow long. All the days of his separation to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead person, not make himself unclean for his father or his mother, for his brother or his sister when they die, because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord." And then there's a, a number of additional restrictions. And then at the end, he would fulfill his separation in verses 13 and following by bringing a specific set of offerings. And then verse 18, he shall shave his dedicated head of hair at the doorway of the tent of meeting and put it on the fire, which is under the sacrifice of, the, uh, of peace offerings. All this seems very strange to us. It seems like an odd ritual, and yet it's something that God commanded the people of Israel that there were certain times when they would make a vow of separating or dedicating themselves to God for an unspecified period of time, as in it wasn't a fixed period of time, it was the amount of time they set themselves aside to God. During that time, there were certain restrictions. What were some of the things the passage said they weren't supposed to do? Nothing connected with grapes. What else? Okay, Okay, yeah, no cutting of their hair. What else? Yeah. Yeah, not go near anything that was dead. Okay? So think about, and and it it went so far to say is if you had a close relative die, you couldn't even go to their funeral because you could not be near someone and, and defile yourself in that way. So this was a serious commitment before God. There were also other vows that the people of Israel would make. And I don't have a specific passage for you, but essentially they would say, God has blessed me in a particular way. I'm going to dedicate this certain amount of money or produce or uh, livestock, all of these sorts of things. That's going to be for God, and I'm going to give it as a gift to God. Now, what we're going to see here is that there was a possibility that they would speak beyond their ability or they would speak hastily without thinking about it. So, God's response is, if you make a vow, a solemn promise, he takes no delight in fools, pay what you vow. So in the same way, someone could come into God's presence with a a careless attitude and many words, and all of those sorts of things, someone could also come into God's presence and say, I'm just making this promise without thinking about it, without considering the consequences of it, all of those sorts of things. Uh, Perhaps the uh, most notable example of this is in the book of Judges, when you have the story of what happened with Jephthah. Judges 11, I'll just read you a brief excerpt here. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, so he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, through Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he went to the sons of Ammon. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me. When I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Verse 34. When Jephthah came back to his house of Mizpah, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing. She was his one and only child. Besides her, he had no son or daughter. He says, I've given my word to the Lord. I cannot take it back. She said, My father, you've given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Ammon. And she said, Let this thing be done for me. Let me go two months to the mountains and weep because of my virginity I and my companions so she did so at the end of two months she returned to her father who did to her according to the vow which he had made thus it became a custom in Israel the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year there's a lot of controversy about that passage some people say certainly he wouldn't have committed a human sacrifice but the context of the book of Judges is every man did what was right in his own eyes Solomon's point is you should not put yourself in a position where you have to keep a promise to God that is, at the very least, a cutting off of your family line because, I mean, the one view is she was never allowed to marry, she was dedicated to God all of her life. And the other view, which seems potential based on some of the language there, is he actually offered her as a sacrifice you should consider the words that you speak before God, the promises that you make before God. And certainly, it is different in our day in that we are not saying, I'm going to take a Nazarite vow and separate myself to the Lord for a certain period of time. We're not saying I'm going to vow a certain amount of things uh, that God has given to me and bring them to the temple as an offering. But it is possible... that we can speak hastily and make promises to God along the same lines. This happens in the context of war. God, if you spare me from this, I'll serve you the rest of my life. Or maybe a well-intentioned uh, person would say something like, God, if you give me a child, um, I will you know, read the Bible to that child every single night. which would be a great thing to do. But can you honestly keep that promise 100%? It says in verse 5, it's better what? That you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Verse 6 is where it gets into the idea of this, uh, this offering. Do not let your speech cause you to sin. Do not say in the presence of the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? So, There's this idea that the messenger, probably from the temple, was coming to collect the thing that the Israelite had said, I will give to God. He arrives, and the Israelite says what? Sorry, can't do it, don't have it. There is an implication that God would bring judgment and potentially destroy some or all of the rest of what belonged to that Israelite, destroy the work of your hands. This was something that God takes seriously. So the application, I think, for us when it comes to the promises that we make, what did Jesus say about our works? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Because what were the Pharisees encouraging the people to do, at least by their example? What, if we make a promise to someone and we don't want to keep it, what do people do as either a joke or semi-seriously? Cross your fingers behind your back. I didn't really mean it, you know? So the, the Israelites had a similar custom. They would say, I promise you by the gold of the temple, I will do such and such. And then someone would say, when are you going to do this? And they'd say, well, I promise by the gold of the temple instead of by the temple itself, so you can't hold me to my word. There's a, there's a deceptiveness at play there, right? Who made the temple? Whose temple is it? It's God's temple. So you can't say, I'm, just, you, I'm being bound by part of the temple, but it doesn't matter because it's not the main structure itself. It's God's temple, and you have sort of called God to witness for the thing that you promised to do. So Jesus said, let your yes be yes, let your no be no, or more than these will bring you into judgment. Which is exactly what Solomon is saying here. When we make promises, we should keep them we should anticipate what the result of those promises is going to be. And we can't anticipate everything, but we should think about it. If I say, I'm going to help so-and-so out on this specific day, probably would be wise for us to check what we've already got written down on the calendar before we agree to do it, right? And we could take this to the other extreme and say, I'm never going to commit to anything because I don't want to ever be caught um, stuck, you know? That's not the point. The point is, we should be trustworthy. We should be honest. We should keep our promises. What is true about the character of God that should make us want to keep our promises? Yeah, and He does. So God wants His people to be like Him. So how does this tie into worship? God is transforming us to be like Him. So when we come into His presence, we should come reverently, and respectfully and seeking to learn from him and recognizing that he is a holy God. Think about uh, Moses with the burning bush. What was, the, what was it that God expected of him when he, when he came to the burning bush? He took off his shoes. Holy ground. It was a, an expression of fear, of reverence, right? We've kind of lost that in our day. We don't fear God. We certainly can recognize that God is a loving God, and we ought to recognize that. But uh, Hebrews chapter 10 says this at the end of chapter 10 says um, it's not at the end of chapter 10. It's the end of chapter twelve. verse twenty eight says this. Since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We say, well, that was just an Old Testament thing. Who is Hebrews written to? New Testament believers, right? So that wasn't just something just for the Israelites. God is the same God now, As he was then. And just because we've never seen someone struck down like Uzziah when he touched the Ark of the Covenant or um, other people who disrespected God, things that were holy to God, just because we've never seen that firsthand doesn't mean that God doesn't take these things seriously. God still takes these things seriously. So when we come into God's presence, our attitude ought to be God, I'm not the one who has the answers. You are. Teach me. And calls to mind Job. What does God say? Job, why don't you explain me how the world works? Could Job do that? No. We come to God's presence, recognizing we need to hear from Him. He doesn't need to hear from us. Doesn't mean we don't speak to Him in prayer. But God is not added to by our prayers as though He was somehow lacking something. He does give us that privilege to come before Him, though. So, guard your steps when you go to the house of God, when you gather for worship, and when you make promises to God, think about them. When you make promises in general, think about them. Because if God is everywhere, does God hear the promise that you make to your brother, to your sister, to your coworker, to whoever it might be? Does God see the promises that you make uh, for financial obligations or for work responsibilities or all those sorts? God knows all that stuff. He is a witness to it, whether we acknowledge Him or not. And so if we fail to keep those commitments, it's not quite the same thing as breaking a specific vow, but it certainly is not living up to the sort of honesty and reverence and respect that we ought to have for God and the testimony that we ought to have toward other people. So, guard your steps as you go to the house of God. Verse 7 says, In many dreams and in many words there is emptiness. Focus your thoughts. Consider your words. Come before God properly. He is a kind and a loving God, but He is still God. And fear him. And we tend to immediately see a phrase like fear God. I mean, that doesn't mean fear him like be afraid of him. But see a lot of examples in the Bible when people were so terrified of God's presence, they fell flat on the ground and waited for God to lift them back up. So while we do not need to fear God in connection with his wrath if we belong to him, because Jesus has taken care of our sin, we ought to have a proper reverence and respect for God. So that affects the way that we live. It affects the way that we gather to worship God. Um, The way that we pray. The way that we sing. And when it comes to the way that we sing, it doesn't mean we can't be joyful in God's presence. We should. But it does mean... Think about what you're saying. Some of the songs that we sing, the, the different hymns or different songs that we sing, they have words that are like prayers, that are like commitments to God. And so often we sing them and we don't think about what it is that we're saying. Think about what you're saying. Think about who you're saying it to. Uh, when we speak to one another, we say, I'm going to pray for you about something. Do it. If you feel like you can't do it, then don't say, I'll pray for you. And we should get to a place where we can and we will, but, but we should be honest. Because that God is a God of truth. God is a great God. God is a God of truth. If we belong to God, we'll be like our God who is truth. We won't be like Satan who is the father of lies. right? So don't lie to God, but even more importantly than that, As we look over this whole passage, take warning that when you come before God, you are in the presence of the one who made all things, holds and binds the emptiness of the atoms and the particles of the universe together by his power, not just once, but every single moment. The one who made the world, the one who will remake the world, the one who... uh, did great and amazing things in the Old Testament, the one who will come and in signs and wonders reveal his presence again as described in the book of Revelation. That's the God we're coming before. Recognize who he is. And then as you seek to live for him, live in a way that lines up with his character. Be someone who keeps your promises because he's a God who keeps his promises. Be someone who is trustworthy because he is trustworthy. And in so doing, we fulfill the command at the end of verse 7, Dear God, let's pray. Dear Lord, we ask that you would help us to consider our words when we come before you to be careful that we do not have empty words. You condemn the Pharisees for just saying prayers to be seen by other people because when they did that, they had no concern for the one that they were praying to. Certainly our prayers ought to edify those who are listening, but really they are mostly for you and to you. And so help us speak and come before you with reverence. Lord, when it comes to the promises that we make, Help us to take them seriously because you take your promises seriously. Help us to fulfill the things that we have committed to. Even when we think about what Jesus said about following him as his disciples, the, there are those who have put their hand to the plow and turn back. The book of Hebrews speaks of those who shrink back to destruction. Lord, following you is serious business. It's not just pray a prayer, check off a box on a card and go on and live life the way that we want. It is that we, in essence, belong to you. That we can and do offer our entire being as a living sacrifice, hopefully in a way that is holy and acceptable to you. That we recognize who you are and we fear you because you are a consuming fire. You love us. You care for us. But you are not our, our peer. You are not beneath us. We cannot manipulate you to do what we want you to. We cannot treat you as though you are uh, a friend like any of our human friends with whom we are equals. You are so far above us, Lord. And yet you have condescended. You have come down and shown us mercy and grace. Lord, help us to be grateful and thankful for that privilege constantly. But Lord, help us never to lose sight of the fact that you are God, that we are created, and that we are to serve you. You are not to serve us. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.